Welcome one more time, everybody. My name is Dirk, the lead pastor here at Encounter Church, and I want to say welcome to everybody worshiping here and on our Kenwood campus in the upper lobby and worshiping online as well. Glad that you're all with us today. We're in part three of a series right now called Love Has a Name, and if, uh, and if you weren't around for parts one and two, that's okay. They don't exactly build on each other. What we're doing is taking a look at this prophecy about Jesus 730 years before Jesus was ever born. It's this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 that says that Jesus would be called, the Messiah would be called Wonderful Counselor. That was two weeks ago in part one, that he would be called Everlasting Father. That was last week. And I just got to be honest, that wrecked a lot of us in the room. So, so some of you like left last week about, you know, Jesus being this everlasting father figure and, and whether you had that or didn't have that or lost that recently, it's just like the last six days were like your app cart was knocked over and you're just trying to put all the pieces back together. And then today, and then today is Prince of Peace. And you're like, well, that sounds great because like how controversial, how, how hard could that be? I mean, Prince of Peace, that sounds amazing. We need, we need some peace, especially this time of year. I mean, I think one of the things in God's providence and his wisdom, he puts Prince of Peace in this like Christmas time prophecy because it's like every December or so we find ourselves like longing and yearning for this nebulous concept of peace. I was at the mall recently yesterday and it was just like, it was so crowded and it was so it was just insanely busy all the time everywhere. We brought our kids to like the woodland play area with like the monsters and everything. And it was like the, the monsters were just all over with, and the play structure was also like the monsters. It wasn't just the kids, you know. And, and I'm like wondering, leaving there, I'm like, how in the world could everybody in the universe be at the mall and at the same time also be on 28th Street just shutting the entire things? How can everyone be everywhere all the time? I mean, that's, that's like this time of year in, in a nutshell. We crave, we yearn for peace. We crave and yearn for like this emotional or relational kind of peace. Christmas coming right on the heels of Thanksgiving, it just has a way of like, like drawing out and highlighting some of, the, some of the relational disconnects we have in our lives, maybe in our families. And you show up to these Christmas parties, you're supposed to make small talk with people that you don't really like. Or maybe it's a work thing and you're making small talk with like Janet from accounting, people that you don't even know. And you're like, I don't, I don't, what am I supposed to do here? Just how long, like, what's the appropriate time to be at a place before, like, I can, I, I can, it's okay for me to just leave again, like two hours, one hour, I'll just, just kind of exit as quick, quick as I can. Peace. And we're like, man, the Prince of Peace, that sounds amazing. But I gotta, I gotta say, and here's the problem. This is kind of like the thesis statement of the whole, of the whole day. So this is like, this is like the one thing that we got to figure out together before you leave and head on, head on into the week. The problem that we have with Jesus as the Prince of Peace is that whenever I say prince, you start to think like, okay, there's a prince, there's probably a king somewhere along the line, a queen, it's like a monarchy. And you don't have, you don't have to be like an expert in Middle Eastern monarchies to start to figure out like the royal family, like the prince, they're probably the ones, he's the one in charge. He's the one making the decisions. And the problem is that's all well and good and that sounds great except for we already have a king. I already have a king making the decisions for my life and it's me. I'm the king and I have a kingdom. Those little four walls that I call home, that's my kingdom. Or I'd like to think it is anyway. 
the, the, the place where I go to work, right? I like to think that this is my little sphere of influence. This is my kingdom. You've got a job site that you're going to show up to and a title you're going to live into next week. That's like your kingdom and you're the king or you're the queen of your own kingdom. And that feels just as great, until it doesn't, until you're like, why is there not peace in my own kingdom? And it starts to think that maybe the problem isn't somewhere else out there. Maybe it's a little closer to home. And Jesus is offering, he's like, hey, I got this. Let me be your prince of peace. And it's like, great, except not really. Because I don't want you sitting on the throne of my life because my life already has a king. It's me. And so why we have these sayings like, it's my life. Let me do what I want. You do you. It's your life. You can do whatever you want because you recognize that I'm the king or queen of my own life and I recognize that you're the king and queen of your own life. So just let me do what I want, when I want, with whom I want because after all, again, it's my kingdom. And then Jesus is born right smack in the middle of it. And we're confronted with a question, who's really the king or queen or prince of your life. And that's what this morning's story is about, this question of who's the king, who's the queen, who's the prince in your life, and who brings the most peace. So I want to invite you uh, under the chair in front of you. There's a Bible. You can turn to Matthew chapter 2. That's our story for this morning. As we heard earlier, we're phone-friendly church. So go ahead and pull a phone out of the Bible gateway or the Bible app, Matthew chapter 2. The words are going to be on the screen behind me. And while you're flipping to it and pulling up the webpage, uh, let's start off in Matthew 2 verse 1 where you see that, that after Jesus was born, and listen to these descriptions, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod. And this is a bit tangential, but I think also relevant enough for us to kind of get down. You just notice how the biblical authors in the birth narratives of Jesus, these Christmas stories of Jesus, that they're anchored in history. Like the authors, whether it's Luke and a different one, you know, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. It's like anchored in history. Or this one in Matthew chapter two of saying like, hey, listen, we've got this historical little village called Bethlehem. It's in this region of Judea during the time of King Herod. It's like Matthew is going out of his way and saying, these are, these are real stories of real people. This is, what, this is a historical account that I would like to share with you. And so for some of us, that alone is going to be challenging enough this Christmas because we like to think it happened a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And Matthew says, no, that's, that's, that's not this story. That's not the deal here. Uh, once upon a time in Bible land, no, 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 Bible land is like real land, real people, and, and King Herod. King Herod, by the way, who is written about extensively as a historical figure. And that just all is supported by some of these stories in the Bible here too. Uh, Josephus is a historian around the era that wrote, again, extensively about just observations that he made and the kings and queens and the stories that he kind of came across. And he wrote about King Herod kind of a lot. And King Herod is one of these guys that's like going to experience this, this, this confrontation that I think a lot of us experience about like who's really sitting on the throne. And King Herod, I mean, he did a, he did a pretty good job of sitting on the throne. He was uh, elevated. His dad was well connected to Julius Caesar. And so he was elevated to like this uh, kind of governor of Galilee type position in his early 20s. So he was fast-tracked, right, for 
for senior level leadership in the Roman administration, even as, an, as, a, as a young guy. He did a good job with that. He lowered crime significantly in the area. He kept taxes at a, at a, uh, at a medium kind of level, enough to keep Rome happy and enough also to keep the people under him happy. So he just kind of kept on getting promoted until he got promoted to the region of, of most of the Jewish people in the Middle East around the turn of the millennia, around like that zero AD mark. And so he was he's fantastically... Um, respected, maybe a better word, a better description might be feared. Herod here was also known as Herod the Great. He named his kids also Herod, so it gets real confusing real quick. Herod the Great here was known as, uh, as the builder, architect kind of guy. And he built some impressive uh, fortresses like Masada. He named one of them Herodium because if you're going to build something, you might as well name it after yourself. Uh, he, he did some extensive... He used the technology of the day. I, I love this. Uh, there was this kind of brand new discovery of this certain kind of volcanic ash uh, that people found out would, would cement underwater. Uh, we call it today, it's a hydraulic kind of cement. But, but he discovered th- that you could move, well, he didn't discover this, but it was just obvious at the time that you could move large amounts of freight most um, inexpensively and quickly by water. And so you put stuff on a huge boat and send it across the world. I mean, it was safer and it get there a lot quicker than on like the back of some camels or something like that. The problem is these boats could only dock at a few places, a few harbors that were wide and calm and deep, naturally occurring. There was only a handful of them in the known world to them. Until Herod comes along, he discovers in that era this like volcanic ash and thinks like this stuff will cement underwater. So he trudges out what's called Caesarea, he named it after the emperor, he trudges it out, pours the, the volcanic ash in and this hydraulic cement settles and he, and he makes a harbor, one of the very first ones of the time. I mean, this guy, like as a builder, was almost second to none. He decides Jerusalem, his capital city, Jerusalem should be someone known because he's a bit egotistical like all of us. And he decides Jerusalem should be known as a city that was worthy of somebody of his own caliber. And so he takes the most, uh, supposed to be the most impressive building, the temple in it, and he starts rebuilding it and, and, and redecorating it. And he builds this thing. He constructs this thing into something that is so impressive. The foundation of the temple is still standing today. That Western wall in Jerusalem that may be seen about or read about on the news. That's, those are the bricks that Herod the Great had other people lay on his behalf with his designs. That's, that's this guy, Herod the Great. I mean, he was shrewd, right? There was this, uh, this is kind of on a historical level after Julius Caesar was assassinated and the Roman Senate was kind of up in, up in the air as to what would happen. There was two main kind of factions vying for leadership of that body. One of them was Mark Anthony along with Cleopatra kind of in the Egypt area. And the other one was Octavius kind of in the Western, more uh, Italy area where they had central powers. And because Herod kind of had a lot of projects going on with Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, he actually uh, had the monopoly on asphalt mining from the Dead Sea with Cleopatra, the stuff that you would use to seal up ships. So he already works with Cleopatra and Mark Anthony in a number of projects. He backed them. Well, pretty soon people realized there could really only be one sheriff in town. And so, and so Mark Anthony and Cleopatra started going into outright war with Octavius. 
And Herod, Herod had backed Mark Anthony and Cleopatra in Egypt. And so, and so when these two started duking it out, Herod would call up these fundraisers with his friends and would have these lavish parties in honor of, of Cleopatra because that's who he backed in this whole thing. Except for some of you who know your history, you're like, wait a second, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra did not become emperor and empress of the Roman Empire at the time. And Octavius, in August of that year, took over control, and went by the name Augustus. He was the first Caesar, Augustus, over the Roman Empire. And for the very first time, Herod the Great, Herod the Cunning, Herod the Shrewd, backed a loser. And so he had to go, and he had to grovel at the feet of this enemy, Octavius. And you know, he is so shrewd, and he is so clever, he's so great, that he goes and he grovels back to Octavius, now known as Augustus, and he says, listen, you know that I'm loyal. You know how, how, how dedicated I am. And you know how dedicated I am because even though you are who you are, and I backed your enemy, I stayed with your enemy, Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, until the bitter end. And now that that bitter end has come, I want to just say, now I'm ready to be loyal to you. And Josephus, the historian that's keeping track of all this thing, says it was such an incredible speech. He didn't lose his head. In fact, he left that day head fully intact. And also, they added onto him miles of coastline in Judea. They even added in the region of Samaria nearby. And they cemented him as Herod, king of the Jewish people. That's Herod. Now, for as shrewd as he would, as he great as he would, he was also horrible. So one story is, is his wife suspected that he thought she was trying to take over the throne from him. And so she did the only thing she knew how to do in order, in order to like get back at him for this inevitable end that she thought was coming. So she stopped sleeping with him. And it's just like, true story. That's just what she did. That's the only tool that she had in her arsenal at her disposal. And then so what does he do? He puts her on trial for adultery. And he actually, under threat of their life, gets her sister and mother to testify against her. And then he has them all executed as a result. He had dozens of his close family members, nephews, sons, wives, all executed. He wasn't just Herod the Great. I want you to know he was Herod the horrible. And this is just like historical, account, historical accounts. You can find most of the stuff on Wikipedia and a few other articles online. But I just want to share all of that because you got to know who Herod is when this next line of scripture comes at you. When all of a sudden Herod is doing what Herod has done in the, in the, in the, in the palace that he built for himself and he hears a knock and the next line says that Magi from the east, and you don't just kind of get a sense on where east, it's just like a long ways away, that kind of east. We don't exactly know where they showed up, but it was from the east. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So they come to the capital city. Now, some of you have heard this, like Magi came, and you're like, oh yeah, like those are the Magi, or maybe they're sometimes they're called wise men, or sometimes they're called the kings, and they came with gifts, gold, frankincense, and Myrrh, you like you know the story, and you think, oh, there's three gifts. There's probably like three kings or three wise men, and it's like, well, it doesn't say that. It just says there's three gifts. It's plural, so it's anywhere from like two. 
20, 200. Like, we, we don't really know. But anyway, these guys show up and they're magi, which make no mistake about it. It's not like, uh, it's not like they're the wise men, like we're kind of thinking about it. It's more of like the guys in like downtown New Orleans with the cards and the palm reading. It's like those kind of people. Like they're, they're magicians. They come from the East, probably Persia. And it's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Where do these guys show up on the scene? Where do they come from? Well, in, in God's like sovereignty of history, which I think is one of the points here, he like designed this whole thing so that a long, long time ago in the book of Daniel, when the Babylonians took over the southern kingdom, they carted off all these Jewish boys and girls like the creme de la creme, the, the, the smartest and the wealthiest and the nobility of Israel, and they bring them all to, to Babylon. And then Babylon gets taken over by the Persians that kind of all fractures in a bunch of different areas by this time in Roman history. So over 600 years, Daniel, this little kid, this little guy with the, the, the dreams and everything, Daniel ends up in, in, you know, modern day, or in modern day, according to this, Persia, and he had all these dreams 600 years previous about how there was going to be a Messiah that was going to be born, there was going to be a king that was going to be born, there was this whole, like the stars would align in this exact way, and they simply believed them. And so for 600 years, there were these magicians who just watched the stars. Not like astronomers, like the class you might have had in college. Not like that, like astrologers, like the people out on the streets with the cards and palm reading. And they would just watch the stars and trace the movements, believing that there was meaning in the stars and how they would align. And they just like believed this prophecy. And so when like the stars aligned in just the, in just the right way, they said, okay, now's the time. Grab your gold, Frank says, grab the myrrh, let's go. And they headed for them west towards Jerusalem. They get to the capital city. They knock on Herod's door and they're like, and they, they knock on Herod's door and they, verse two, and they ask, hey, where's the one who was born king of the Jews? And if you're Herod, you're sitting on a throne. There's gold everywhere. It smells like frankincense. Not 100% sure what myrrh is, but it's probably there too. And Herod's looking around. And he's going, what do you mean? The king of the Jews. Like, that's me. Octavius, Caesar, Augustus declared with his own words and by edict of the Roman Empire that I am the king of the Jews. And they said, no, no, no. The other king, the new king, we came to visit the teeny tiny boy king that would sit on the throne. We came to honor him. And, and Herod, the horrible, loses it, right? But Herod, the shrewd, keeps it together just long enough to listen to them say, we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. In verse 3, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, if you're like a note-taking kind of person, you've got a Bible out, a notepad or something, we say a sharp pencil beats a Nope, a dull pencil beats a sharp mind every day in remembering the truths that God tells you. Like this would be worth just kind of like an underline or just, just, just something to remember as, as we progress through this story here is that Herod was disturbed. 
Now, I told you enough about Herod to know just what it means when the king gets disturbed. I mean, when the king gets disturbed, head starts to roll. This is bad news. Now, we get that. The next line, though, and all Jerusalem with him. You know enough about King Herod. They lived under the guy. They knew that when the king gets disturbed, everybody in the city, everybody in the region gets disturbed. And so like one of the takeaways that's going to set us up for this confrontation later on is just to realize that the climate of the place, the climate of the city, the climate of the people living there is really ruled over and reigned over and dictated by the guy who sits on the throne. And so I just like, as a takeaway, just consider this, is that, is that, is that the ruler dictates the climate. I, you know, that's, it's going to be important to realize something, just to realize that like the people of the place are not going to achieve a kind of peace that's more or better than whoever it is sitting in the highest place. And so for any of you who identified with me a little bit and saying like, yeah, no, no, I'm like the king of my own kingdom. I am the queen of my own kingdom. Like, I just want to let that sit there and said, your life is not going to ever achieve a sense of peace and calm and wholeness that's going to surpass the level of peace and wholeness and calm of you the person who sits on the throne of your own life. You, as a ruler, dictate the climate that your life experiences for better or worse. Herod, remember, he's horrible, but he's also shrewd. In verse 7, Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go! And search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. He's not going to worship him. Like, right? Like, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that except for the out-of-towners. And maybe they even get it. But this is the line. He's like, okay, you go and you kind of do the dirty work. You go to Bethlehem, right? And you find whoever the boy king is. just, Just let me know. And, you know, I'll... I'll bring my myrrh, and we'll send it at, at his feet there anyway. Verse 13, when they had gone, so they visited, when they took off, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, that's Jesus' dad in the family, stepdad in the family, in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, that's Mary, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him because the angel knew what everybody else in the land already knew that Herod was great, was shrewd, and was also horrible. And that's exactly what happened. It's a historical event that would be remembered as the murder of the innocents. But the soldiers went around door to door in Bethlehem, a small town. Small town. There's probably more people in the room here today than in the entire village of Bethlehem. Everybody knew each other. Everybody lived with each other's families for centuries in that little town. And soldiers went from door to door while parents rushed 
with no notice whatsoever to try to hide any evidence of whatever male toddlers have been in their house. And soldiers took the boys out, took them away from the families and had them killed. It was a horrible event. And no doubt that that event was seared into the, into the knowledge and into the brain of Mary for the rest, the rest of her life. But she was warned and she took off. She went to this certain part of Egypt called Alexandria where a lot of the expatriates from under Herod's rule who had, let's say, political differences with Herod would also hang out into. They probably lived there for a while and then when they were told that it was safe, they could return back home, but they didn't go to Bethlehem. It was too close to Jerusalem. It was too close to the political center of the place. Now, they went to Nazareth in Galilee, about as far away from any kind of political center of power, a capital city, as you could, as you could imagine. They went and they, and they hung out there. And why, why am I sharing this whole thing about Herod and these other kings, these magis, and all, all of this stuff? Okay, here's, here's the point. Here's, here's the point of all this whole thing. We can look at this thing and say, man, those people back then, they had a Herod problem. But if we're honest and if we kind of do an evaluation of world history, it's like every king or queen or monarch or leader or somebody came and they were promising what, like peace, promising tranquility and promising calm and promising that everything was going to be better under their leadership and it rarely was. You can kind of go through history and start to see maybe it was Herod the Great, maybe it was Alexander the Great who just marched through the whole kind of Western world at the time and just took everybody over. Maybe it was Ivan the Terrible or William the Conqueror. And you don't even have to know who those people are, just the names that I shared with you to start to realize. I don't think they knew like, like, like peace in a grand sense. And so I just want to say, like, this story is, is Herod the Great. And I just want to say, listen, it's not just a Herod problem. I think it's a humanity problem. Because I think if we're going to be honest with ourselves and the way Herod kind of looks at his own, his own throne and his own rulership and his own, his own kingdom, and he says, listen, this is mine and I can do with it whatever I want to do with it because I'm the king and it's my kingdom. I think that there's a sense in which we can all say, yeah, I've got a little, little streak of that going on. Like, that's, that's, in, that's in me too. Like, I get, I get that sense. I've told people, listen, it's my life and I can do whatever I want with it, when I want, with whom I want. I mean, you do you, but I'm going to do me. I can do whatever I want. And so this morning, this morning, I just... You know, I'm not going to have you write it, write it down or you know, share, share it with your neighbor, whether you know them or not. Like, we're, not we're not just going to do that. But I, I want you to consider for a minute as to whatever exists in your life, whatever is kind of floating around, whatever's hanging around, and you wish it wasn't, that you wish it was gone. You wish you could be, just be done with this whole thing. You know, coming into the Christmas season, for a lot of us, a lot of times, it's just, it's like debt. It's credit card debt and it's December now, but January is going to just hit hard and come fast at us, right? And it's like, man, I wish, I wish I wasn't the kind of person who spent more than I made. I wish I wasn't the kind of person who just like took on all this, or just went out to eat all the time and caved to peer pressure all the time, and I just racked up all this debt, and I don't know how I'm ever going to get out of it. Like start to think about those, those things in your life you just wish you were freed from or you wish you didn't have anymore. I'm thinking about some habits that you may have developed when you were 18 or when you were 21. 
You know, it's just like, it, it just, it didn't end at 18 or 21. Now at 31 and 58, it just expanded and it grew. And maybe you're still there and you're just like saying, listen, it's just a bad habit that I'm trying to kick to be a better or a more healthy person. But at this point now, other people look at it and say, no, this is a full-blown addiction. And you're a slave to it. And I like, like look at a lot of this stuff. Maybe it's a relationship that you wish you were done or just that you entered into, right? Because, because you know, somebody honestly told you you couldn't or you shouldn't. And so that just made you run into their arms just even more and commit even, even that much sooner and earlier. Just like whatever it is. And I want to just like take a step back and say how many of those things came as the direct result of you stepping up and stepping in and saying, you know what, even though people told me I shouldn't, even though it was unwise, I'm going to do it anyway because it's my life. I'm going to do me. You can do you. But I'll do what I want when I want with whom I want. And if that's true, and I suspect for many of us that it is, I know certainly for me it is, it's possible then that I might not be the best person to sit on the throne of my life. In fact, if that's true, it's possible too that, that like Herod, I'm, I'm a danger driving my life by myself, that I actually don't need help. Maybe, maybe it's true that you don't actually just not need help. What you need, what I need, is somebody else to drive this life entirely for me instead of me. And then this Christmas, in December 25, when people are opening presents, or maybe you read the gospel story, Luke chapter 2, probably not Matthew 2, too many people die in that one. But like you, you gather around the Christmas tree or whatever devotional prayer time, whatever your tradition is, and you reflect on the Prince of Peace coming into this world. Just consider too that maybe... Maybe this Christmas, there's like this conflict that's happening between you living your life, me living my life, and Jesus coming as the Prince of Peace and saying, if you want peace, that's not just a calm. If you want peace that lasts, you can't get there by yourself. You can't get there on your own. I can help with that. It's the peace that he offers. Listen, it's not like anything that Herod ever experienced before because he was only just one bad alliance. He was only one soured business deal. He was only one bad call away from just losing it all and losing his own life in the process. It wasn't just this absence of calm to Jesus. Jesus, the prince of peace that brought peace, this kind of peace was a wholeness. The Old Testament word in Isaiah was shalom. It was this, this perfection kind of concept to it. You know, they didn't have very many, very many words in the Hebrew language. They probably had something like, like 60,000 words, which sounds like a lot, but the English language has like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of words so that these words all did double duty. So their word for peace, shalom, they actually used to describe a, a particular kind of brick. And it was a kind of brick that was free from any cracks or from any gaps. It was a perfect brick. It was a shalom brick. And then they realized if they took these bricks and they started stacking them on top of each other and several shalom bricks all together could create a home. 
And the home, because of all the pieces were built without cracks and without gaps, the home was actually built without cracks and without gaps. And it was called the Shalom Home. And if they extrapolated that one out and applied it to the whole city and the government buildings and the, and, and the gates and the fortresses surrounding the city, they said that the city, the whole thing, had no gaps and no cracks. And it was a shalom city. And along comes Isaiah and says, that's the picture. The buildings, the structures, the gates, and all the people in it, there's no cracks and there's no gaps because Jesus, is the Lord, is the prince of shalom. And he promises today, this Christmas, he promises his life to pour himself out to our cracks and our gaps that we break in our lives and open up. And so today, I just want, I want to leave you with a picture. This is such a beautiful picture, such a compelling picture for me. Right? And before you head out in the week, what does this thing look like? Because you have those areas where you tried to force it, or you tried to assert your freedom, you tried to sit on your throne, like the whole thing got messed up, and there's all these cracks, there's all these gaps of broken relationships, and nasty habits, addictions, hang-ups, whatever, in your life. And what does Jesus do all that when he, with all that when he pours out his life? It kind of looks like this. This is the Japanese art of kintsuji. And, and you know, this is, it's an idea is that there's a vessel, a bowl, pottery, a plate, something. And when the clay starts to crack, instead of filling it in with other clay, instead of filling it in with, with wax, something to hide the cracks, this ancient Japanese art form takes something remarkable, platinum, silver, gold, and fills in the cracks with that. And I thought, what a cool picture about your Prince of Peace, your Prince of Shalom today, who takes his very life and melts it down on your behalf and says, here, you are not going to fill the cracks and gaps on your own. The harder you try to do that, the more you just herod the whole thing up. But here, do this. I melt down my life for you. And I take my heart and I fill it in with gold, silver, platinum. And so those areas of your life that you're like, man, I wish this didn't exist. Man, I wish I had victory here. Man, I wish I was done with it and it was in the rear view. Those pictures, those cracks, those gaps actually look like the most beautiful parts because those are the parts that reveal Jesus the clearest in your life. If I offer you this, Jesus' kingdom and your kingdom collide. Yield. Let him sit on the throne. Do it his way. He's the one, the only one that truly brings peace. I you to stand up and we get to pray and go into the presence of that Prince of Peace this morning. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we, we all have our unique ways of being broken today. God, maybe some of us, we get in arguments on the way into church and we're short with each other. God, others of us with these habits, full-blown addictions. God, we have tempers. God, we have laziness, impatience. God, we all have cracks and gaps. We need you to Jesus to show up in. Help us to yield. Give us the courage to yield to you so that those areas of weakness 
reveal you, our Prince, most clearly. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. We've got a table set up and back. If you're ready to yield to the King, to the Prince of Peace, we'd love to pray with you there during this song.